Welcome to Economic Frontiers. Uh, today, our guest is Dean Eccles, who is an assistant professor of marketing at MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, Dean is an expert in experimentation, causal inference, and peer effects, uh, and is doing some really innovative uh, work. So uh, really excited to have this conversation. Welcome to the show, Dean. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so why don't we get started uh, with a little bit about your background. So one of the uh, uh, one of the interesting things about you is that you don't have a PhD in marketing or economics, uh, but, but in something else. So wh why don't you tell us how you got involved in this field? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually, a lot of my initial interest in getting involved in research was um, from the perspective of human-computer interaction. And so that's how I started kind of getting working in uh, the internet industry. Um, and then there's a lot of connections between thinking about human-computer interaction, HCI, um, and how uh, you know, online uh, markets and services work. So uh, that's really sort of what, what led me to this, this direction. And so um, uh, my PhD is in communication, and I also have uh, master's degrees in cognitive science uh, with a focus on human-computer interaction, especially uh, computers trying to persuade people um, and bring about behavior change and also in statistics. And so that's sort of my mix of uh, skills. Actually, before I joined um, MIT, I worked during my PhD and then for three years afterwards um, at Facebook. So a lot of the experience I have um, running randomized experiments, thinking about the tools to run randomized experiments is from uh, that time um, at Facebook. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And one of, one of the things that you might be able to tell us a little bit about is whether um, the kind of human-computer interaction viewpoint on persuasion is is different than the marketing viewpoint on it, like what what approaches do the two fields take? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So one one of the things that I learned, um, you know, studying uh, with with two of my mentors, B.J. Fogg and, and Clifford Nass, uh, was to to think about um, the variables involved in the design of technology. So I think a lot of times when people think about technology. They think about sort of monolithic technologies, like what, what does it mean for TV to enter the market? What does it mean for mobile location-based ads to enter the market um, as these sort of monolithic technologies? Or what happened when radio entered the market? Um, but instead, maybe you can think about some of the specific uh, design choices and characteristics of those technologies, um, many of which might be under your control as a designer. So I think part of it is that it's often a lot more design-oriented and sees the technology um, as pretty plastic, as something that you as a designer or manager might consider uh, moving somewhere else in that design space. Um, so I think that's that sort of design-oriented perspective is, is one of the things that I, I took from that. Yeah, the, I think that's a very general theme uh, uh, of like people that work at companies. They have the ability to change things, whereas academics, they, they can look back at history and try to figure out what happened. And of course, from, from that perspective, it seems that, you know, the big change is TV or radio. But of course, you know, at, while you're at, you know, a company, let's say you're at Facebook, Facebook is already there. And frankly, the effect of Facebook might be of academic interest, but the practical interest is how to, how to change it in order to uh, improve whatever, whatever your kind of uh, objective function is. Yeah, and I think especially now that we're sort of in this world of internet services and more and more things uh, being in software, right? The idea that software is eating the world. Um, that makes all of this so much more um, plastic. And so as a designer, it is reasonable to consider, wait, how could I change how this communication technology works? How could I change how this market works? Um, as a relatively open-ended question, as opposed to, um, yeah, there is something to the fact that once standards were agreed on for broadcast television, there are some constraints involved there. And um, as, as a social scientist, you're only going to be able to study actually existing television-like technologies, not um, some of the alternative variations that you're considering. Whereas with software, with internet services, uh, it's really so much more of an open field. Yeah. So, um, so kind of starting with that, with, with that background, um, one of your research and maybe life interest is, is in causal inference. So 
how how does this intersect uh, with with this theme that that you've been thinking about? Uh, yeah. So w when you're thinking about sort of a design oriented perspective on technology, uh, it's often about uh, uh, trying different designs um, and uh, seeing how they do with respect to some objective function. So decision makers who are designers or product managers um, in the internet industry, one of the main tools that they have for um, figuring out what they should do next is trying different things. Um, and usually what they want to know is what would happen if we launched this new redesign of our service? We changed the Facebook homepage. We changed uh, how you know the Yahoo homepage works. Um, we change how people write reviews on Airbnb. What would happen if we rolled out that change to everyone? Um, and so that's a, a question really about, about counterfactuals. What would happen if we launch this change versus what would happen if we don't launch this change? Or maybe we have a much wider design space that we're exploring. So um, what would happen if we used uh, this marketing copy or that marketing copy or you know some third set of marketing copy? So there's, um, there's a lot of these questions that are really about uh, counterfactual policies that uh, we could implement or counterfactual designs that we could roll out uh, to our users. And so uh, those sorts of questions are causal questions. What would happen if we did X? Um, now, luckily, one of the natural ways to answer these is through randomized experiments. And randomized experiments or A-B tests are super easy to do a lot of the time uh, in internet services. So that's one of the main tools that we have. So I'm going to ask you the straw man question, which I'm sure uh, many managers have, have also asked you, uh, which is, okay, so this sounds great. Uh, I'm on board with uh, causal inference, but you know, what is there to say about it? Let's just run the A-B tests and go, go forward. Like, why is this uh, an entire research area, and what are kind of the key choices one makes when, when trying to design for causal inference? Yeah, so I think actually there, there's a lot of truth to that, which is that once you have some of the tools set up um, to do rapid A-B testing, to do rapid experimentation um, on your customers or on your partners or on, on the market that you're running, um, that it can be pretty easy a lot of the time, that a lot of it becomes super routinized and you're churning out A-B test after A-B test um, over a short period of time and making lots of decisions using them. So I think in some ways it can become really easy and routinized if you have the right tool sets and sort of the right culture around that. And a lot of that is not so much just about the details of causal inference as uh, you know, part of econometrics or applied statistics, but about um, software engineering um, from the perspective of, of trying to make reaching the right decisions the easiest thing to do, right? So having good defaults for all the people who are designing these experiments who may not know a lot about statistics. So a lot of times, actually, it can become quite easy through tooling. Um, that's part of the perspective behind a, an open source um, tool uh, that, uh, that we released um, with, with some of my colleagues at, at Facebook. Eitan Bakshi is the person who leads that project. Um, a tool called PlanOut, which is a framework for um, running and deploying randomized experiments um, in all kinds of settings. And so you know, it's used at Facebook, but also at a number of other companies now. And, and our perspective there was really this idea, that there's this um, quote from uh, Sir Ronald Fisher, um, a pioneer in statistics, that to consult the, the statistician after the experiment um, has been conducted is to merely ask him to do a post-mortem. He can tell you what the experiment died of. Um, one of the things about experimentation in the internet industry is there's so much of it happening, there's way more experiments there's way more experimenters than there are statisticians. And so the goal with tooling is often to try to build the good advice of statisticians um, into the very tools so that just the process pushes people towards running A-B tests in the right way and avoiding a lot of the pitfalls that often do come up in that area. So what are those pitfalls? Like what mistakes would someone make if they're not uh, aware of uh, proper experimental practice? Yeah, so I think some of the some of the pitfalls are really boring ones. Like people think, oh yeah, um, so we need to assign people to groups A and B. Let's just do it sort of haphazardly. Like uh, you know, we'll we'll assign all the people with odd user IDs to treatment, and all the people with even user IDs to control, um, and that'll be 
as good as random, right? So that, that often turns out not to be true. Your user IDs might not really be as good as random, and all of a sudden you um, have an important bias in your results of your experiment. Um, so there's a lot of you know really sort of nitty gritty things like that, like making that making sure that the the pseudo random number generation that's behind the random assignment in your A/B testing is actually valid. Um, so there's those kinds of things. There's some that start to involve a little bit more related to um, to causal inference, like making sure uh, that uh, the units that you're randomizing are also the units that you sort of care about the outcomes for. So if I'm going to randomly assign users to different experiences, then I want to look at user-level outcomes. If I'm randomly going to assign advertisers to different conditions, then I want to look at advertiser-level outcomes. And sometimes we want to actually randomize smaller pieces than that. So maybe we want to actually randomize um, uh, pairs of user and, and ad so that for, for each user, we maybe see them experiencing ads in different designs. Um, so we can see the same user many times, and then we look at outcomes at the ad level. So uh, being able to think carefully about what the units are that you're trying to randomize and what that tells you um, about the decisions you're trying to make, uh, that's a source of a lot of problems uh, in some cases. So to, in the big picture, one of the ways that that can be a problem is that often the units that we really care about are all of our customers at once because our customers are interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. So when we're saying, oh, what would happen if we rolled out some redesign of a networked product like Facebook? Or what would happen if, as you know, uh, we you know, were to redesign how reviews work on Airbnb? Um, the answers to those questions involve a lot of your customers interacting with each other. Yeah, um, I, I completely concur that actually thinking through designing the proper experiment to answer the question you're interested in uh, it, well, it's it, it's it's complicated. Like the there's oftentimes like you have to make trade-offs in terms of kind of statistical power uh, versus uh, properly ensuring that your kind of uh, various people aren't interacting in the wrong ways to break the experimental con conditions. And so um, uh, setting good defaults does seem to uh, be really important. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about kind of the company's perspective on experimentation is perhaps the role of um, thinking about experimenting to learn behavior versus experimenting to test policy. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So a lot of routine A-B testing is essentially bake-offs, right? We have one or more new ideas. We want to see which one of them is best and whether any of them are better than the status quo. And then that corresponds to some kind of really often minimal policy, which is, hey, let's just launch to everyone the thing that looks best. So a lot of A-B testing is just about, hey, let's bake off some policies, some designs against each other. Um, and that way, it can be sometimes sort of atheoretical. Um, and that's great, actually, that you can make decisions in a lot of these cases without having a lot of theory. But in other cases, especially if you're getting at some things that are pretty core to your business or that in the social sciences that we're trying to really understand how people um, are making decisions, uh, what factors are affecting their behavior, then we care about designing experiments that are not just getting at some particular set of designs that we're baking off against each other right now to see which one's best. Uh, but we want to learn about which factors specifically are affecting people's behavior um, and that may, that may involve doing other sorts of experiments in which we actually consider alternatives that we think in advance are not better than the status quo, right? Where we actually might try things that we think might not be as good as what we're already doing. Whereas normally, in a bake-off, we wouldn't do that. So maybe I can give an example yeah, of that. Yeah, definitely. So um, uh, at, uh, Facebook has um, a lot of its ad units feature social cues. So you might see an ad uh, that says, uh, your friend likes this page, and then there's an ad from that page. So um, for a lot of reasons um, derived from many theories in the social and behavioral cognitive sciences, we'd think that uh, this could make people attend to these ads more, make the ads more effective. Um, so if you wanted to actually learn about how big that social influence effect is from this social information about your peer, um, one way to learn about that is through doing a randomized experiment where you change which cues are present 
uh, in the ad. Maybe actually if you have multiple friends you could show, you could decide how many to show or which to show. Um, some of the easiest ways to learn about how important these social cues are involve not showing social information that is available. So, we, you know, maybe there's an ad that I could see that says um, Andre Fradkin likes MIT Sloan, um, and we could decide not to show Andre Fradkin likes MIT Sloan and just show the ad from MIT Sloan. Um, our expectation in advance is that uh, that ad without Andre's name is going to be worse, is that it's going to attract less of my attention. I'm going to think it's less relevant. I'm less likely to click on it. I'm less likely to convert after clicking on it. So in advance, we think that that alternative would be worse um, than the version where we do show the social cue. But by experimenting with removing that social cue, we learn about how important social influence is overall in the ecosystem of advertising. And that could allow us to do things like uh, both test theories in the social sciences, but also do things like allocate resources in an organization. So how much time should we spend on designing uh, how all this social information is collected and displayed? The answer to that is going to depend on how important uh, social information is in, you know, in this current regime, in the status quo where we're using it in this particular way. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, as, as another example, uh, you can think about a lot of companies uh, will randomize their uh, ranking results in order to learn things like uh, how large are position effects and uh, like for what is the difference, for example, if you're displayed as the number one link versus number two link uh, on Google search results. Uh, you can run an experiment and learn that. But if, if, but if you don't run an experiment, then you always have uh, confounding factors uh, that would, it would be hard to infer uh, what that effect is. And then if you find that it's a huge effect, then that's, that should probably uh, result in you allocating more resources uh, on search ranking algorithms. And it might also actually be relevant not just for the company's resource allocation, but for the company's uh, communication with the rest of the world. So. Uh, if uh, a company can credibly say that, like, hey, the number one ad slot is really way better than the number two ad slot, that's going to affect how the advertisers bid, and it's going to uh, uh, affect the bottom line of the company through this alternative channel. Uh, and I think uh, actually an interesting uh, uh, area with regards to social networks themselves is uh, do the users, do, do we know uh, what happens when we like a page, for example, like who see who sees it, like which one of our friends see it, what they see about it, so on and so forth. Uh, perhaps that's uh, that's something that's uh, underexplored in, in the setting. Um, do, do you know anything about uh, these types of effects? Yeah, well, I think um, one interesting point there in general in a lot of social media is the notion that our audience is often invisible to a large degree, that we only know who our audience is when we post something from some of the traces that they leave on our post, some of the feedback that they might give us, whether they're liking our post, commenting on it, or mentioning it to us in person. So um, generally, social media platforms, whether it's, um, it's Facebook or Twitter or, or others, um, if I post something, I don't get to know whether you saw it unless you take some action on it. Um, so actually, some of, some of my uh, colleagues at, at, at Facebook um, uh, published a paper about quantifying the invisible audience on Facebook, where they say, let's ask people how big they think their audience was for a particular post um, and see how that compared to their real audience size um, and see what signals they're using to figure out what their audience might be. They, they found that actually people were dramatically underestimating their audience size uh, for posts, probably because they were also overestimating the feedback rate. So I might think that, hey, you know, 20% of people who see my post, they're going to like it. Uh, and so then if I have, you know, a certain number of likes, uh, then I'm going to use that to scale up to my audience size, right? But actually, people are liking things at a much lower rate than people were estimating. And so that means they're underestimating their audience size. Um, so just in general, in, in social media, even not considering the sort of downstream consequences for things like advertising, uh, often who my audience is is somewhat uncertain. I can limit my audience using privacy settings, but who the effective audience is depends on other people's consumption behaviors. 
which I don't get to observe. Yeah, uh, that is that is interesting. I mean, one one thing that I've always wondered is to what extent inter informational interventions can would affect people's behavior if you told them, hey, if you write a post, like 100 people are actually going to see it or 500 people are going to see it, depending on what that number is for you. Like, is that going to affect uh, whether you write that post in the first place or not? Um, but uh, I want to move on a little bit. Um, this is a natural uh, uh, place to, to get into kind of what you can do in a so-called big data environment that you can't do uh, in a small data environment. So let me preface this by, the, by like saying that there's a parallel movement in experimentation going on in the development economics community where they try to evaluate various interventions to help poor people. Uh, but that requires uh, giving uh, kind of money or ex goods, which may or may not be expensive, but cost some money to, uh, uh, to individuals in the developing world. And so the sample sizes uh, of these experiments that one can run to evaluate a particular intervention, they're, they're, they're going to be kind of small. Even, even I think, a thousand observations is a pretty big experiment. Whereas on Facebook, uh, I don't know what the official number of users is, is currently, but uh, certainly uh, it's hundreds of millions of people can be in your experiment uh, if, if you would like them to be. So um, what does that open up for you? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting contrast. And that's one of the examples that I like to bring up when I talk about doing randomized experiments in the internet industry is just how much easier it is compared with really the incredible amount of work that some of our colleagues here at MIT, like in the Poverty Action Lab, go through to run these randomized experiments to evaluate uh, development interventions, right? Even just the process of randomization, how you conduct that um, in the field uh, in a way that sometimes needs to be sort of public and credible, um, that it really is random, can, can be really complicated. Whereas, um, Mainly in the internet industry, a lot of times all you have to do is compute a hash function um, of some ID and all of a sudden there's a kind of random assignment. So it's, it, it's really nice, I think, just whether it's big data or small data per se, uh, how quickly you can iteratively do randomized experiments, um, that's a big difference. So even, even when I'm you know, working with, with smaller startup companies, um, they don't have these sample sizes of, of hundreds of millions of people. Um, but they still have the ability to quickly experiment um, on maybe a smaller sample. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, uh, we don't think about it when we learn like statistical theory, but it's easy to like screw up a practical detail of an experiment. And if you only have one shot, uh, it's, uh, it's game over. You're, you're not gonna get very much useful uh, stuff out of it, no matter how much you squeeze it. Uh, but if you and I think it, even if you don't screw up a practical detail, a lot of times um, you only realize that the experiment didn't answer certain questions that you really cared about until after you've run the experiment, and then you iterate. So a, a single experiment is rarely definitive, both because circumstances can be changing, etc., but also because even the experiment itself will generate new questions. So you might try a couple of variations and then realize, oh, we should have had a fourth variation here. Um, and that would have really clarified matters for us. So um, a lot of times uh, you want to be able to iterate. Now, uh, some of that has to do with how quickly you can design the new interventions, how quickly you can randomize uh, people to be uh, exposed to these new interventions. Uh, but some of it is also about the scale on which you look at your outcomes. So a lot of what is impressive about some of the work in, um, in development in political science and economics is the kind of the, the long-term scale of some of the outcomes that they look at in these experiments where they track people over multiple years and look at how much you know, food they're able to, to consume, um, educational outcomes over a longer term. Um, one of the things that happens a lot in the internet industry, for better or worse sometimes, is looking at much shorter-term outcomes and so that people can make a decision based on launching some treatment in an A-B test, um, should we launch that? Was that good? Uh, should we follow up with another experiment? They can make those decisions in maybe a week's time because they're looking at much shorter term outcomes, things like conversion rates, um, overall visitation, um, engagement metrics that they think they can get meaningful signal on in a short period of time. Now, sometimes they're wrong, 
maybe there's a lot of novelty effects and what happens in the long term can be very short, different than what happens in the short term. Uh, but I think on the whole, they're able to move a lot faster, both because of the ease of implementation of the interventions, the ease of randomization, and then that the outcomes can be measured on a much shorter time scale. Yeah, the, that's certainly an advantage. Um, but of course, I think as you were hinting at, uh, there is some danger in kind of hitting a, a local optimum, if you will, right? If you're, if there are kind of like two modes of operating your online platform and uh, you're in one mode uh, and you're changing things on, on the margin, you know, an algorithm here, you know, and a, you know, uh, kind of an email campaign here, you're, you're not going to move so far away maybe from where you started off uh, when really the big Thing would be to completely redesign your site, for example. So how, how does one square the large changes uh, with experimentation as opposed to kind of um, the, the smaller changes? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So a lot of times it's easy to think about A-B testing in the context of hill climbing. Basically, we are at some point in this design space or at some point in this fitness landscape and we're going to try to make small changes to improve things. Um, so that's pretty easy to imagine and pretty easy to implement, right? But a lot of times, especially for um, firms like startups where their business might really be in flux or there's parts of their product that they're, they should be open to dramatically changing, I think they need to take much larger steps. So that's often advice that I've given to startup companies is, hey, a lot of these experiments that you're running seem like tiny tweaks for where you are in kind of your life cycle as a company and where your product is. You should be taking much larger steps. And one of the things that experimentation should make you comfortable doing is that you can try these larger steps uh, precisely because we can, we can see whether they're good or not, right? Whereas in, in the absence of A-B testing, in the absence of randomized experiments, um, you'd often have to make a big jump on based on intuition, uh, what folks at Microsoft call the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion, um, or based on market research that would often be done on a different population than who your actual customers are. So with A-B testing, we often do get to know whether these larger steps are worthwhile. So people should make those larger steps. That also comes back to the question of uh, the difference between testing a policy and trying to learn about behavior. One of the reasons that we do experiments to try to learn about the factors that affect individuals' behaviors is because that could help us make bigger redesigns, to invest some resources to redesign how a platform or product works um, rather than trying to test uh, some radically different policy right away. A lot of times people think about A-B testing or experimentation as just randomized evaluation. This is actually often how it's talked about in uh, development econ and political science which I think makes sense in that context. It's very expensive to do. You need to have a program that really has had a lot of work go into it already. So that has A-B testing really late in the design process, right? Sort of in this confirmatory stage. But I think there's a lot of room for randomized experiments much earlier in the design process, informing how to allocate resources across different areas you could, uh, you could think about. So you have an interaction designer who could be working on many different things. What should they work on? Past randomized experiments might tell you what they should actually spend their time thinking about redesigning. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so now I, I want to move on into one of your kind of topic areas. Uh, and uh, specifically, you're very interested in peer effects. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, about some of that research and what you've learned so far. Yeah, so when we say peer effects, we mean um, any effects of the behavior of an individual's peers on that individual's behavior. Um, and so, and usually we're going to consider all these things pretty broadly. So when we say peers, that's not just your like school chums. Um, that's sort of anybody that we might think of as being a network neighbor. So it could be your friends on Facebook. It could be people that you're um, in a uh, running group with, in a running app. Um, it could be your family or other kin. So, um, uh, so broadly considered, other people who um, you're somehow connected to, what's the effect of their behavior on yours? And 
really, if you look at basically any field in the social sciences, they have multiple theories about why we should expect substantial peer effects in almost everything. So what, I, I mean, what are those theories? Right, so, um, so in, in economics, uh, one reason that we would expect uh, the behavior of peers to affect yours is that um, it reveals information um, about uh, those different behaviors. So if I'm trying to decide whether to adopt a product, um, seeing a peer adopt the product uh, is informative to me in a couple ways. Um, they may have some private information that uh, led them to adopt the product. They know whether it's a good product or not. Um, also, if I get to see them after they've chosen to adopt it, I might see whether they're having a good time with this product, for example. Um, so that's sometimes called information uh, interactions or, or uh, expectation interactions. Um, also, I might be trying to explicitly coordinate with my peers. So uh, if the product we're trying to decide whether we want to adopt is a fax machine, right? Um, fax machine isn't very useful if I don't have anyone to fax. Facebook isn't very useful if I don't have anybody posting content showing up in my newsfeed. Snapchat's not very useful if I don't have anyone to snap, right? So in those cases, um, it should, it should really be that I'm trying to actually coordinate on the adoption of, say, a communication technology with my peers. Um, and so that, that's included under the umbrella, usually, of preference uh, interactions. So that's sort of the, the view from economics. But you, you have similar stories that come from uh, other fields as well. So psychology um, uh, has different typologies of social influence um, as well. So basically, any, any social scientist that you're going to talk to is going to tell you to expect peer effects in many settings. In fact, any layperson that you're going to talk to is going to say, "Oh yeah, um, there should be a lot of influence or contagion in the adoption of all kinds of behaviors." Okay. Um, so let's say I was a very naive person. I was just looking at the data, and I saw that, um, for example, uh, people whose uh, friends are obese or also happen to be obese. Um, can we uh, say that that is due to uh, peer effects or, uh, or, or not? And what, what are kind of the complexities in trying to make that inference? Right. So though we expect peer effects almost everywhere, we also expect some other processes almost everywhere that can produce some of the same patterns that peer effects do. In particular, that can also cause us to observe behaviors being correlated in the network and in time. So. Um, if we observe uh, one person adopting a product um, after their friends have adopted it, did their friends cause them to? Um, or some of the other explanations are things like, well, actually, people who are friends or her family members or coworkers or follow each other on Twitter, those people are similar to each other, often in ways that we don't observe. Um, so uh, that often gets uh, lumped under the, the term homophily or love of the same, uh, which is kind of captured by the, the aphorism, birds of a feather flock together. So the idea is that people who are peers, who are connected in, in a network, are often similar in a whole host of ways. A lot of times we don't get to observe them. So the reason that we see that adoptions are correlated in a network um, can sometimes be because there are peer effects and sometimes because there's this homophily factor as well, causing similar people to adopt. And I think most likely, most of the time, it's both of them, <laughs> right? Um, in the behavioral sciences, there are like no zero effects. And so it's often just a matter of how important are these different factors, pure effects versus things like homophily. And it can get even more complicated than that, because a lot of times when we observe people adopting a product or um, uh, a fashion or expressing a particular opinion, um, it's not just that there are some fi fixed characteristics of those people uh, that are correlated in the network, but they might be exposed to external factors. So I think um, uh, Max Weber has this famous example of you see a crowd of people, and it seems like they're, you know, a bunch of them are putting up their umbrellas, and, and it's almost like a wave of people putting up their umbrellas is sweeping through the crowd. So you might look at this and say, okay, there's actually huge peer effects in putting up your umbrella. Yeah. People are looking around them and seeing that people are putting up their umbrellas and then they put up their umbrella. But actually, of course, what's happening is that uh, the, the edge of the rain front is sweeping through the crowd 
and exposing some people to the rain sooner than others. Now, of course, there could still be pure effects in putting up your umbrellas because, I don't know, if you're in a crowd, you don't want to block everyone's view if you're the only guy with the umbrella. But a lot of it is driven by this external factor. So if you weren't observing the rain sweeping through the crowd, you might conclude that this is all about pure effects. This is umbrella contagion. So we have to be really careful about trying to distinguish those things. Yeah, and this is, you know, this seems like uh, oftentimes uh, maybe an academic distinction, but actually has really practical impl implications. So uh, going back to kind of the obesity example, the types of interventions that you might be thinking about in terms of helping people lose weight, uh, uh, the social interventions would seem more promising if we had conclusive evidence that what's going on is that, you know, I eat a lot because my friends eat a lot rather than, you know, we both, you know, don't care about our health and that's why we're friends. So, um, uh, so I think uh, that's true not just in this health example, but in a lot of examples uh, on, on the internet as well. Yeah, and actually maybe I'll say a little bit more about some, some of the internet examples. So we, we already talked a little bit about the idea that when I um, choose to adopt a communication technology, I care about who else has adopted it because I want to communicate with them. And also that when I post something on some, some service like Facebook or Twitter, um, part of the value that I'm going to get is the idea that other people see my post, that I have an audience. But I only get to find out about that audience often through their actions. Um, the fact that they give me some sort of feedback in the form of likes or comments. And so um, that's a context where we should really care about peer effects in the continued use of these communication technologies. So um, if somebody posts something on Facebook or Twitter and they get more or less feedback, um, how does that affect their decision to continue broadcasting, to continue posting on that service? Um, so that's a case where you really want to know how large is that, are the effects in that virtuous cycle. Um, and that could change uh, a lot of your policy. So you want to know, is it um, just that people in the network who uh, post a lot and give their friends a lot of feedback, that they're just doing that because they're similar? Um, or is that actually sustaining their use of this communication technology? Is that actually... Um, keeping this whole service attractive and interesting to the people who are using it. Um, so that's a case where you'd really want to distinguish between things like homophily and whether there are actually these peer effects that are driving your whole business, essentially. And so you, you've written some papers about this. So what, what have you found? Is there like a brief synopsis, I guess? Um, yeah, so, I, so this is definitely still an area we're, we're working on. But uh, maybe one of the things to highlight is, is just thinking about how would you actually go about learning about this. So we've talked a little bit about doing randomized experiments. Um, so here the question is, is something like, um, if we give Andre a little bit more feedback on his post, how is that going to affect whether he chooses to post again and whether he gives other people more feedback, whether he logs in more often to his social media account? Um, so how would we actually do a randomized experiment with that? That's one of the big challenges in pure effects is that uh, we don't, the treatments are what your friends do, but we usually don't get to randomize people to what their friends do. Their friends just do whatever they want to do. So that presents a real challenge for running randomized experiments. Um, one approach is uh, what we already talked about a little bit before, is the idea that sometimes uh, you control a non-deterministic mechanism for the peer effects, right? That the reason that you find out what your friends are doing is because it's communicated to you um, at the top of a social ad on Facebook. Then uh, the experimenter could choose not to show um, that social information in the ad, uh, and that'd be a way of learning about uh, how big those peer effects are, at least via that channel. Um, but in other settings, we don't have that opportunity because the, the mechanism is deterministic, right? Uh, you post something uh, and somebody comments on it, uh, sort of the quality of service guarantees from somebody like Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn is that you then get to see that comment, right? And so uh, how can we learn about cases where you get more or less feedback? So th the main strategy that, that we've used to, to study that uh, in, in one of our papers that's out is um, what we call a peer encouragement design, where we randomly assign people's peers to an encouragement to engage with that focal individual. 
So we sort of slightly nudge your friends to give you a little bit more feedback just by subtly changing the salience of giving you feedback. For example, by uh, making the text box for writing a comment on your post open by default or closed by default. Mm -hmm. So that causes you to receive a slightly different amount of feedback on your post, and that can allow us to learn about the effects of receiving additional feedback. So, um, so that's sort of the, the method is by using these kind of small, lightweight nudges um, to a behavior of interest among people's peers to learn about the effect of their peers' behavior on their behavior. So um, uh, what's, that actually kind of comes back to this idea of big data versus small data. A lot of the nudges that we can use there are really, really tiny nudges. I often describe them as sort of a feather nudge. <laughs> um, that wouldn't work in a smaller data set, right? The only reason that you're able to learn um, about peer effects by using these small peer encouragements is because you just have potentially huge sample sizes. Um, so that is definitely a, a big difference, uh, is that with big data, you can often um, detect effects of much smaller interventions. So just to kind of maybe uh, uh, frame this, what do you need the, the big data for? Uh, you can be in several, one of several situations. One is you can have a huge effect, and you're going to be able to detect a huge effect without that much data. Uh, and that could be one of two types of effects, actually, in your design. It could be that the encouragement is huge. Like uh, in one of the papers that I wrote, we studied an experiment where uh, people were offered uh, a monetary incentive to write a review, and that's a pretty big incentive. It had a pretty, pretty large effect. And then there's the second part of that, which, which is what is the effect of that behavior uh, on the outcome of interest? So in your case, would be like the subsequent engagement of the user who got commented on. And so uh, you kind of uh, need either one, one or both of those to be large. Uh, otherwise, you need to be in a land of an enormous amount of data because you're not going to be able to detect the effect. Um, yeah, and I think actually... Uh, unless the first part of that, the, the effect of the encouragement on the behavior that you're trying to encourage, unless that one's large, you really need to have a lot of data. But um, I, I think that's an important distinction to make because it could be that, say, in your example, where we're, we're interested in seeing what happens if we get somebody to write um, an additional review. We could use either a big nudge, like a monetary incentive, or a, a small nudge, like sending them one more reminder email. Yeah. Right? Um, either way, the effect we're still in interested in is mainly not the effect of just this incentive, but the effect of them writing the review, for example, on how many reviews they write in the future, or uh, them writing the review on uh, the, the host that they're writing the review for, um, or any number of things. So that second stage effect is what we really care about. And that effect could be quite large, even if our nudge is really tiny. So a lot of times people think, oh, well, with big data, the only advantage is that you find these tiny, meaningless effects that are not important for your business, okay? But if you're using the big data to try out these small nudges as part of an encouragement design, then the effects that you're actually interested in are not the effects of the nudge, but the carry-on effect of the nudged behavior on something else. And that effect can be quite large, even if the first effect is quite small. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, one way to think about it intuitively is if your nudge is very small, then your effective sample size is just the people that got nudged. So if only uh, 100 out of your 100 million people were affected uh, by this, uh, you know, collapsing of the comment section, then you're just not going to be able to detect the subsequent effect, even if it's uh, large enough to be of, of interest uh, to, to you as, as the experimental uh, designer. Right, right, and and I, that's that's basically what happens in in that in that study is that um, our first stage effects of encouraging people's friends to give them more feedback, mainly by sort of opening and closing comment boxes, those effects are small, but the effects of receiving additional feedback on outcomes like choosing to post again, or giving other people feedback, sort of uh, some generalized reciprocity, those effects are actually quite substantial. Um, and so we do find um, really good evidence for 
this sort of virtuous cycle um, in in posting, receiving feedback, giving feedback, posting again um, in social media. Um, but we use uh, just kind of a feather touch uh, to learn that. So I, I want to get into a little a little bit of the technical issues. Um, so one issue that, I, that, I, that I'm just thinking about right now um, is uh, suppose that there are substitution effects. So let's say that you randomize at a post-specific level. And so some posts uh, seem more attractive to comment on than others. And so uh, given that I have a limited amount of time, you know, I'm not sitting all day on Facebook, hopefully, uh, <laughs> I can only write one, one comment at a time. And so uh, if I write a comment on your post, that means that I'm not writing a comment on some other post. Uh, so does that pose problems for your experimental design? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that goes back to um, some of the different goals that we might have in running experiments, whether we're trying to really try out and evaluate a particular policy or whether we're trying to estimate um, some particular effects that could be useful for designing future policies. So uh, I think if you were trying to figure out, oh, what's um, should we launch this policy of opening or closing the text field for commenting for all posts, then that kind of experiment is not going to be informative about that, right? Because yes, there are going to be these big substitution effects that you described. Um, on the other hand, if our goal is really to uh, learn about what's the effect of marginal feedback, sort of feedback that barely occurs or doesn't occur depending on small, small factors changing, if we want to learn about the effect of marginal feedback on continued posting, continued engagement, uh, then we're just trying to estimate that particular effect. Um, and we might use that model then to design a subsequent policy. For example, we might learn that um, uh, some feedback is more valuable than other feedback. Some people maybe need more feedback than others, or some uh, people are more responsive to additional feedback than others. For example, we may learn about exactly how much diminishing returns there are in receiving feedbacks. You know, getting your first like on a post yeah. is maybe more important than getting your 125th like. Um, so learning about those effects uh, would then be used to maybe design a new policy of sort of targeting some of these nudges, um, targeting some of the nudges in the network. So it's not necessarily that the experiment is directly informative about a particular policy already. It's that it allows you to estimate um, some effects in a model to calibrate a model that might be used to design new policies. Yeah, and it doesn't, the new policies don't have to be nudges. So, like in your example of if it's truly the case that only the first comment matters, I don't, is that something you found, by the way? Or? Uh, we, we do find evidence that's consistent with diminishing returns. So, it's not, it's not just that only the first comment okay. matters, um, but that uh, really, really what we find is actually that everything is pretty homogenous on a log log scale. So that basically, which, which corresponds to that, you know, uh, the main result in that, in that paper is that um, we give you 10% more feedback. Um, you uh, give other people 1% more likes. You give other people 1% more comments. And you produce slightly less than 1% more posts. I see. Um, and so uh, actually on that multiplicative scale, um, there's not a lot of heterogeneity. So uh, that suggests this idea that basically there are these kind of uh, multiplicative uh, effects, and thus there's some dimi potential diminishing returns of additional feedback. I see. So, I mean, one, one practical thing is that out of this might be that uh, how much you distribute a given post to the rest of the network uh, is going to vary. If you think it's really important to get this individual to comment themselves, then uh, you, you will distribute it, but of course that has a, a cost, which is that other people's posts aren't getting shown as much. And so there, there are these trade-offs, and this helps us think about such trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, there are, there are definitely a bunch of trade-offs here which have to do with essentially, you know, in, in something like a, a feed, um, the height of each post uh, really affects all the subsequent posts. And so you really are trying to trade off, okay, if we make each post bigger, if we expand some of the existing feedback, if we open up the text box where you could write a comment, et cetera, um, that's pushing the rest of the posts down. And so those substitution effects are a key part of any policy that you'd want to consider. Um, 
Another issue that, that I, I want to bring up with these encouragement designs is that um, is the issue of uh, local average treatment effects or heterogeneity. So mm -hmm. um, let's say you have this, this nudge and just 0.1% of people actually uh, were affected, were responded to this nudge by, by writing a comment that they otherwise wouldn't have. Well, that's a very small percentage of your population. So to what extent can you infer something general from, uh, from the behavior of these uh, almost outliers in, in, by definition? Yeah, so this, this has been a big controversy in, in causal inference and uh, econometrics recently is when you have these kinds of uh, inducements or experiments with noncompliance, um, you get to learn about the effect on the people who are induced to comply, who are induced into the behavior by your encouragement. Um, but how much do you care about that? Um, have you sort of just settled for learning about something that's not what you wanted to learn about in the first place, and instead really what you wanted to learn about was um, an effect that would average over everyone, not just those people who would be induced to a behavior by your nudge? I actually don't agree with that mainly. I would say in many cases, learning about the effects of these marginal behaviors is more important than learning about averages over the whole population. So thinking about um, uh, the case of receiving feedback, um, you can make a post and then you receive, say, some number of likes. Some of those likes are going to occur basically under any reasonable policy that we're considering. Yeah, right? like, like if you got like married or something. Right, right, or just that, um, uh, I log into to Facebook and you're at the top of my feed because we have high tie strength because of high past interactions. Um, you post something that I'm really interested in, so then I'm going to like it. So under all of the reasonable policies that we're considering, that like is probably going to occur. So it seems not particularly useful, uh, not particularly practically oriented to try to know what the effect of this like is that's always going to occur. Or there's the people who uh, are your friends who basically uh, don't really like anything at all on Facebook. And then we could ask, oh, what would be the effect of them liking your post? Well, that's maybe also not going to happen under any of our reasonable policies. Um, whereas a bunch of these behaviors, that, in this case, feedback, that's going to occur um, or not, depending on small changes to the design, um, to circumstances, uh, those are the things that we're actually going to affect when we make ch when we make changes. And so th that seems really policy relevant to me. So the effects of marginal feedback or the effects of marginal behavior are often super relevant to decision makers, maybe even more relevant than averages uh, over the whole population. Yeah, but I would say that there's a tension here. So I agree on the decision maker part, which is that you care about the margin because that's what who's who you can affect in some sense. Uh, but for science, for social science, you don't necessarily care about the margin. I mean, if the people uh, who got additional comments because of your experiment are really weird, then uh, you can't generalize from that population to everyone else. And, and to the extent that science is about learning general things, then maybe this, you know, you, you, know, you just have to be humble about what you've learned in some sense, right? Yeah, I think that I think that is an important contrast. I think the other big issue is that the the relevant margins can be very different for different nudges. So the people who maybe respond to your monetary incentive to write a review are potentially different than the people who respond to um, other sorts of nudges. And so um, then, if those people are not similar and the the effects of their behaviors on on other outcomes are not similar. Uh, then what I said is, is not going to really be true, that there's so many possible margins that we uh, can't just settle for learning about only one of them. Yeah, I mean, w one example that springs to mind is uh, from Netflix, actually, where uh, when they uh, put uh, the photo uh, corresponding to a movie, they will customize it sometimes to the, to the person. So if you've watched uh, Kevin Spacey m movies before, for House of Cards, they'll put Kevin Spacey on, on, the, on the cover. Uh, but if you, on the other hand, like shows about politics, they might put something related to politics on there. And so uh, 
these uh, interventions are going to diff affect different types of, of people potentially. Right, and that's going to be a very different type of nudge than the choice of whether to recommend House of Cards in position one or position 10. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a couple more things that I want to ask you about is um, one of your uh, kind of passions is to uh, conduct inference in a way that's less parametric. So can you explain a little bit about uh, what randomization inference is and what bootstrapping is? Yeah, yeah. So um, a, a lot of statistical inference that, that we usually do um, works via kind of an imagined uh, series of experiments or an imagined series of data collections that we often care about what happens asymptotically as the sample size that we have goes to infinity and then we use uh, theory about that as an approximation uh, to, uh, to what's happening in our actual data set, which is always finite. Um, so an alternative to that is to, especially in randomized experiments, is to think about um, focusing on the, the fixed population that's involved in our randomized experiment. We have some fixed set of people uh, or fixed set of villages, say, fixed set of um, departments in a company that are in our randomized experiment. What then is, is random is their assignment to treatment or control. And so we essentially just have this uh, you know, vector that assigns everyone to treatment or control and we know exactly how that vector was assigned. We know how everyone was randomized to treatment and control because we did it, right? So this allows us to have uh, a huge amount of certainty about the actual uh, probability distribution for this one variable. And then we can consider just this finite population of the people who are actually involved in our experiment. Um, and that can give us a lot of leverage, actually. So it allows us to, um, to do statistical inference without making really uh, many assumptions at all, uh, especially for things like testing the null hypothesis that um, our treatment had no effects. So often what we do in that case is we, we have our actual experiment that we conducted. Um, we'll do something like compute the difference in outcomes, like the difference in, say, revenues uh, between treatment and control. Um, we say, okay, treatment had more revenues than control. On average, you know, $5 more in treatment and control, um, did our treatment do anything? Uh, so how could we tell? Well, one way is to say, actually, under the null hypothesis that our treatment had no effect, then no matter how we assign treatment, all the outcomes would have been the same. So then that means that we can actually resample or permute uh, the treatment vector that we have. So we just keep randomly uh, imagining that we conducted a different experiment and reassign people to treatment and control and look at what the difference between treatment and control would be in that artificial experiment. We repeat that a number of times and we say, does our observed difference between treatment and control, does that look extreme or unusual compared with the distribution of differences we would have observed if treatment had no effect at all? Um, and if it's extreme, then we can confidently reject the null hypothesis that there were no effects. Um, and essentially, that whole machinery doesn't require any of the normal parametric assumptions, um, asymptotics that go into statistical inference where we say, okay, we're going to assume that um, this is approximately normally distributed or that at least our test statistic, uh, like this difference in means, is normally distributed. Um, we don't need any of that. Um, so that can be a really powerful tool that in some cases can be applied in cases, yeah, in cases where we don't even know what the relevant asymptotics would be, which is especially people in networks. Yeah, um, I, I, I think this is like a very good uh, quest to go on because uh, at least some of the recent work on this topic has suggested that a lot of the assumptions that people typically make uh, when they're testing whether an experiment had an effect or when computing um, the uncertainty regarding that effect, uh, those assumptions are wrong. And so, uh, coming up with an alternative way of, of learning about the data in, in that case is, is really important. Yeah, I think actually there's a, a recent paper uh, in an economics journal reanalyzing a, a whole bunch of economics papers in, in this way, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and they, they find that uh, a number of the, the results that were statistically significant and that were key results to the original papers, if you uh, drop the parametric assumptions and use uh, Fisherian randomization inference, 
uh, in, in just the way that we described, that those results aren't so significant anymore. And so uh, that many of, many of the results in the literature are conclusions there. We're really sensitive to the choice of those parametric assumptions. So that's kind of worrying. Yeah, agreed. All right, so uh, we're almost uh, uh, out of time. So one last question I'd like to ask you, um, oriented towards uh, the academic audience that's listening, is do you have any advice for academics working uh, with, with companies? Uh, yeah, mm. very broad question, I guess. Yeah, um, so a, a lot of times when I was working at Facebook, we collaborated with, with uh, many academics. I, I was... Um, had the pleasure of having multiple faculty members as my visitors there, and, and there was other uh, useful collaborations. So I've sometimes thought about things from that perspective. Uh, I think one, one big issue is that a lot of times um, academics are working on a slightly different time schedule than business, especially smaller internet businesses that can move so quickly. As we discussed, they can they can do an experiment and look at the results in a week time. And um, that's usually not how academics operate. So being willing to uh, say, oh, OK, there's this, this, this period of time when I can dedicate my attention mainly to what's going on uh, in your business. And so we can be sort of synced up on approximately the same schedule. Um, that's going to be key to getting into somebody's process for iterating on, on doing experiments, iterating on research. Um, otherwise, it's, it's often the case that academics are solving problems on just a totally different time schedule than is relevant to the business. And I think that doesn't really help establish uh, their credibility and usefulness. And it often means that uh, they're not able to get as much help from the company in implementing some of the research ideas that they want to implement. Yeah, uh, I can second that. Uh, it's, but, you know, it's, it's actually, I think... Maybe the key challenge, uh, other than getting your foot in the door, is, is, is this time scale. Because academics, um, they're working on many projects at once. Um, more senior academics, especially, aren't even doing the analysis uh, for the projects that they're working on. And, uh, and so they don't really have the, even the, the ability to devote, let's say, a month to work on just one project. Uh, so I creating those opportunities and having an institutional setting that is understanding of that, uh, I, think, I think is really important. Yeah, I think one, one other comment that I would make is uh, a lot of times uh, outside researchers just assume that, um, that there's a magic data set, a magic comma separated file or database table that corresponds exactly to their research question and that all that needs to happen in order for them to do uh, useful research for academic purposes and to, to help the business would be to have that CSV and analyze it. Um, that's usually not the case. So usually uh, the data has been you know, created for some other specific business purposes and maybe is not in exactly the format you want. Um, and also I think that kind of thinking um, is really limiting because often the best data is the data that you create yourself, whether that's by running a randomized experiment so that you know, one of the columns in that CSV is your randomization, or whether that's because you've gotten involved in actually how the outcomes that you care about or the exposures you care about are logged, actually how everything is instrumented. So um, this idea that it's just like, oh, there's, there's some CSV out there that's the magic one that I want um, is both unrealistic and really limiting compared with what can actually be possible if you can intervene or you can measure new things. I completely agree with that, although I will say that uh, this depends very much on your arrangement. You're very much thinking about the case where um, a person is literally coming in to sit in the company and, and work with a person there, but oftentimes uh, the company doesn't have the, the resources to even dedicate a person to you, or they don't have dedicated researchers. And in that case, your ability to influence the company to run experiments or to instrument things is quite uh, limited. And so uh, in those cases, uh, I would actually say that uh, one of the important things is going back to your first point is to show something useful quickly in order to gain trust. So uh, it's a very iterative process. You ultimately want to get to the position where you can uh, have productive uh, input on 
on experiments and instrumentation and other other things that you may care about but uh, that's a long run that's a it's always a long run uh, goal rather than a short run goal in, in my experience yeah I think I think there's a lot of truth to that though I'd also say especially for small like fast-moving internet companies um, the work required for them to run a new randomized experiment that does sort of something that that would be useful for your research and useful for them um, that effort is often smaller than the effort required to construct some historical data set uh, that is this magical CSV that you that you were thinking of, right? Um, because they, their archiving might not be that great. Um, the formats of things have changed over time, but they're running A-B tests all the time probably, and so running yet another one um, might actually be a lot easier than grabbing historical data. So. Uh, having some appreciation of what is easy, what's hard, given their data infra infrastructure, given their experimentation infrastructure, uh, can be useful. Yeah, uh, al although I will say also one more thing, which is that it depends very much on what the experiment is. It might be easy to change the copy on the site or the color of a button. Uh, it might be more difficult to do uh, an experiment on prices, for example, or on uh, some other major part of the uh, website which the users uh, have expectations about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier is that some experiments um, sort of tweak or change parameters that already exist, whereas other experiments, if you're trying to take a huge step in the design space, the work is not necessarily in setting up the experiment. The work is in you know, designing that alternative that is very far from uh, where you are now, and that might require a lot of design and engineering work. Well, all right. Thanks so much uh, for joining me. And uh, uh, I, I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have as well. It was my pleasure.